How are we doing this morning? If you have a Bible, you want to turn to Psalm 92. We'll be there in a little bit. So, um, this applies to maybe a couple people in the room. Others of you maybe have seen this play out before. Um, but for those that maybe uh, are a parent or have seen parents of kids, maybe over the age of three, you've seen this scenario play out before. So, um, you hear kids playing in a different room, and all of a sudden, uh, one begins to cry. And so, you kind of go in and, uh, to scope out what's gone on, and um, you look at the one who's not crying, and what do you say? What happened? And the response, a lot of times, is, I don't know. You've seen this, right? And then you kind of like re-engage. You're like, uh, you're in here. Uh, you're the one that's not crying. That one's crying. What, what happened? We were just playing. Okay. Um, but what happened? I didn't push him. Promise. I didn't. Oh, okay. Um, thanks for telling me what happened. Um, there's something about confession um, that's good for us, even if it's confession that is maybe a, a more unintentional or guarded. Uh, this morning I want to talk about uh, confessions of a Christ lover. Um, and I want to think about this idea of what would be the honest confessions of a person who says, I love Jesus. And, and I don't think it would just include this idea of I, I love my church or um, I love my Christian friends, I love my community group, or I love to read books that help me engage God, I love to listen to a certain kind of music, I, I love these different things, but I think it would be summed up in the fact that I love the person of Jesus Christ. Not just his gifts, not just his provisions, but him, actually him but, but I think we have to be careful because we can't strip away what he's done for very long because what he's done shows us who he is. You know, in the same way you can't dichotomize faith and works, there's a sense where they kind of have to come together because how you live your life actually shows the depth of your faith, right? Okay, in the same way that, that what God's done really helps show us who he is. Okay, um... You know, one, one danger would be to, to just say, well, I, mean, I just love my wife because of what she does for me. Now, not that that's like an all bad statement. But the problem is, is that when in sin, that person, that friend, whoever that is, stops producing for us, all of a sudden the fuel for our love ceases, right? And we need something greater than that. We need something that's going to be deeper than that. And oftentimes what happens is um, gratitude can be summed up in what someone's done for you. So it can be very selfish. Like, I'm just so thankful. But it's very, very me-centered. Um, here's, a, here's a tough question. Um, what, what, if, what if God never gave you another good thing? 
What, what if he never gave you another good thing? The, the rest of your life. Would he still be good? What if, not only that, but what if the, the, the rest of your life was filled with suffering and pain? Like, would, would he still be enough? Like, I think we'd wrestle with that. Because our minds will go to this thing where we say, if I could just have this one thing, like, then I'd be okay. Like, well, whatever that is, this job, like if I could, or a new job, or a house, or kids, or another kid, or a slowed down schedule. Like, if I could just get whatever that blank is. What if you never got that? I'm not saying longing for that is a bad thing, but what I'm just saying, what if God, for some reason, in God's design, he said no to that? Like, would he be enough? Would he still be good? Or is God defined by the sum of what he gives or doesn't give us? Here's another question. What if God created heaven and said you could go but wasn't himself going to be there. Would you want to go? Because I think that the, the honest confession of, of, of a kid, like I illustrated, whether it's intentional confession or unintentional confession, oftentimes is, is us. Where the eternal father comes to us, he's like, what's, what's going on here? And, and we look at him and we're like, uh, I'm not coveting. I'm not ungrateful. He's like, why are you so defensive? I just asked a question. So what's, what's our confession? Because it, on some level, the confessions reveal the depth of our heart. Here's, an, here's another probing question. Do you trust God? Now, we could go all over the place with this. Well, let's talk, what do you mean by trust? What does this look like? Da, da, da. Okay, Here's a, let's, say I, let's say I took 10 of you, and somehow we put a camera on you, okay, for a month, okay? And we let that play out, and then we reviewed the tape. Be interesting, right? Here's what would be the, the sign of whether or not you trust God. Is there a heartbeat of gratitude in your life? Like if we put a video camera on you for a month, like would we see consistent patterns of gratitude in your life? I love what author Brennan Manning says about this. He says, the foremost quality of a trusting disciple is, is gratefulness. Gratitude arises from the lived perception, evaluation, and acceptance of all things of all of life as grace, as an undeserved and unearned gift from the Father's hand, such recognition is itself the work of grace, and acceptance of the gift is implicitly an acknowledgement of the giver. Um, go, to, uh, go to Psalm 92 if you're not there. Let's see how this plays out in the scriptures for a little bit. Um, Psalm 92, um, look at verse 1. It says, it is good to give thanks to the Lord 
to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. Okay, so he, he basically says it is good, and then he names three things. He says, first off, it is good to give thanks. And then he says it is good to sing praises. And then he says it is good to declare his love and faithfulness. Okay, so there's a a maturing aspect, a a deep-rooted faith in the psalmist's words here. Notice what he talks about. Look look at verse 2 where he talks about declaring steadfast love like all day long, like in the morning, his faithfulness at night. Like this is a declaration of my lips. This is a declaration of my life that what I do is a declaration of, of God of God's greatness, of God's goodness, of his faithfulness. But notice the first verse he said, it is good to give thanks. Why do you think it's good to give thanks? Like why, why would it be good to give thanks? Well, maybe on a, on a fairly surface level, like because we're just not oftentimes thankful people. Like more often than not, we will complain about what we don't have and what we want than what we really do have. Okay? Um, we're selfish. We're selfish. So when we take the practice of thanking someone, we have to think outside of ourselves and think on that other person. Okay, but, but not to mention the fact that what we'll unpack here for a while is the idea that God's worthy of it. That gratitude to the Lord is, is what he is due, is, is what, I mean, even what the psalmist says. And what's interesting is if, if you think about, it says it is good to give thanks. This idea of giving thanks Check this out. Here's what this means. To make a public confession of the attributes and acts of the power of a person. So here's what it'd be like. To give thanks would be similar to to giving a proclamation, even in a worship setting like this, where you raise your hands in adoration to the Lord. Holding out the reality of his, His goodness. Holding out, so to speak, the reality of He's worthy of this. Now, have you... Have you ever talked to somebody that's like, man, I'm just thankful? Why? I'm just, just thankful. Who, who are you thankful for? I, I'm just thankful. Like, just things are good. Hey, why? Like, you can't, it doesn't get much deeper than that. And, and, and the object of the thing, well, I'm just, I've just worked so hard, I'm just proud. But, but notice... There has to be an object to our gratefulness. I think it's kind of impressive what G.K. Chesterton talks about when he says that the most frustrating point in an atheist's life is when they have something to be thankful for, but they have no one to thank. So it's problematic to just be thankful because of what we've done, but there's an object to our gratitude. There's a person that's to be thanked. Doesn't just go up in the clouds and poof away. So why does the psalmist talk about this gratitude? Um, Why don't you turn to Colossians 1. Flip over to Colossians 1. Um, The psalmist, I believe there's an attachment to gratitude and spiritual maturity. Okay, why do we exist? Why does the church exist? To bring glory to God ultimately, and the way we bring glory to God is by building deep disciples of Christ who make deep disciples of Christ. Okay? So there's a, there's a connection between what it means to be a deep disciple of Christ and what it means to live 
in gratitude. Okay, and I want to show you this from Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 28. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Okay, so there's a goal there. That The goal is I, I want to present everyone mature in Christ. And no, notice the, the intensity of, of pursuing this goal. Verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So this is my aim. This is what I focus so much attention on. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Check out what he's struggling about. That their heart may be encouraged, being knit together in love. So he's talking about what, what does this deep maturing faith look like? Okay, so you're encouraged in the Lord. You're encouraged in one another. There's this deep, like almost interwoven love for one another to reach the riches of full assurance of the knowledge of the understanding and knowledge of God's mystery okay so there's a maturing aspect which is Christ verse 3 in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments so he's like you grow in maturity in Christ so that you may not be tossed Ephesians talks about tossed about you might be, you know, taken by some marketing scheme and drawn away to, to be, find satisfaction in something other than what God says is most satisfying, namely himself. Verse 5, for though I am absent in the body, yet I'm in this, that I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order. Check this out. So he, Paul is like, I'm rejoicing to see your good order and your firmness of your faith in Christ. Like, if you ever come across a pastor that's not excited about people getting excited about Jesus, that's kind of a problem. Would you agree? But I would take it a step further and say, if you ever come across a Christian that's not excited about other Christians becoming excited about Christ, or that's not excited about unbelievers becoming excited about Christ, then that's a problem. Because we've missed it. Look at, look at verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Okay, so, so walk in Him. Like, don't just talk about Him. Don't just go to church. Actually walk with God. Verse 7, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught. Uh, let's think about this word established for a second. When, when, when I read this, for some reason, I thought of like the new guy in the workplace. Okay, who like isn't established at all, doesn't really know their way around the workplace. Like, you know, they're asking a lot of questions. They tend to be in the way. They're making mistakes. Okay, um, you're cleaning up after them. It's the guy who like doesn't know how to use the copy machine. Okay, that like, and there's a sign right there that like, you know, how do you like green button? You push that and you put the paper in and it makes copy. You know, it's a copy machine. Who doesn't know how to? Use? Okay, so. God doesn't have a clue. Where's the bathroom? Down there, buddy. He must be new. Right? Like, not, no grounds, no, not established. No one's going to that person to ask information. Okay? Um, here's another example of, of, of what it means to be established. Okay? Fritz's. Okay? Uh, 1983. The first one was open. 
Okay, now you can't be around St. Louis for very long and not find out about Fritz's. Now, look at, the, look at that picture. See the dude ordering with no shirt on? <laughs> Isn't that awesome? It's a boy. She says it right there. But the, like they're established. Like they're known. They have roots in the community. Okay, um, see if you can pick this one out. Go to the next picture. What's that? Old Town Donuts. Um, established in 1968. Here, this is kind of hilarious, okay? They were voted number one donut shop in the metropolitan St. Louis area in 2009 by the WIL-FM Cornbread Show. Okay, um, they went up against 12 other shops and they came in first with a panel of cab drivers and police officers. They are established, okay? I mean, that's the epitome of establishment, right? The Cornbread Show says it, you're in. Uh, not only that, they're voted number one donut shop in North County by Suburban Journal readers 10 years in a row. Okay, Here, here's another one. Ted Drews. 1929, first store was started in Florida, two years later came to St. Louis. Okay, they sell frozen custard and Christmas trees. Like, I had no clue about the Christmas tree part. For, like, I mean, look at the picture. The, the owner literally goes to, like, Nova Scotia or something and gets these trees in the fall and brings them back, like, the best trees. She's looking at them there. I mean, you, you, you can't be around St. Louis for very long without knowing these places. They're recognized. They've taken root in the community. They're established uh, Fritz is 28 years, Old Town Donuts, 43 years, Ted Drew's, 82 years. I'll never forget the day uh, somebody had a birthday party, rented a limo a long time ago, and we were taken to Ted Drew's, and that whole parking lot was packed with people, and we get out of this limo and just kind of walk up, and just kind of like, yeah. <laughs> we thought we were established, but so did they, but not really at all. Um, but here's what's interesting. So oftentimes, that same picture describing a Christian isn't true. Here's what I mean. Like, someone can go to church for years and years and years and years, and yet still not really know what's going on. Okay, like you could go to the, the owners of Fritz's and Ted Drew's, and you could ask them anything pertaining to ice cream, frozen custard, okay? There'd be questions you wouldn't even know how to ask because there's things about it that you don't even know about, okay? And they could tell you, or the donut shop. Like, they know everything there is to know. Why? Because they've been through it. They're established. They know what's going on. But yet you take a Christian who's been in church for years and years and years, and they maybe hardly have an understanding of Scripture. They hardly have an understanding of what it means to walk with God. And on top of that, what it means to help others to walk with God. Why is that? Because Paul here says that we're to be established in the faith. Not just established in like, this is where I sit every Sunday. This is where I park. Leave me a cup of coffee. But no, established in the faith. Why? 
rooted and built up and established in the faith just as you were taught. Here's the connection. Abounding in thanksgiving. So there's this idea that in my being established in the faith, what it's going to produce is a better understanding of who God is and a better thankfulness for what he's done for me. I mean, this is why I absolutely love kids when they pray like this. God, thank you for my bike. The whole prayer is like, God, thank you for the refrigerator. God, thank you for the Christmas tree. Um, God, thank you for the Grinch. It's a common one in my house. God, thank you for toilet paper. Thank you for my brother. God, thank you for Gracie. That's a common one in my house. Why is that so good? Here's one that's kind of, uh, I've had to correct lately. In the midst of like, God, thank you, God, thank you. God, thank you for my sins. God, thank Whoa, 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 whoa. God, forgive my sins. (laughs) Okay, let's be be precise here. Um, Be careful. Um, but, But here's why this is so amazing is because this is the language of mature faith. Now, the problem is, is we've, we've learned the language. Like, so I don't have so much of an issue of a kid speaking the language so that when they get to a point where they can understand it, they know how to, how to talk about it. They know the language already, but yet someone who's been in it forever and just knows the language, but yet it doesn't really have any weight to the depth of their maturity. So a mature Christian would would do this. They'd sit before the Lord, and all that could come out of their mouth is, God, thank you. Like Not just like, God, I need this. God, will you do this for me? God, help this person. Those aren't bad prayers. But if those are all we pray, it shows an immaturity in our faith. But if the heartbeat, if if when we sit before the Lord, if the main thing that we sit there about is, God, just thank you for what you've done. God, you could give me nothing else good. Thank you. My life has been a blessing. Because oftentimes, we think about this poorly. Here's a question. How do you pray? It's one of the reasons why I love praying with guys that I disciple. is because I learn their theology. I learn what they think about God. I learn how they understand who God is in light of what they're talking to him about, what they're asking for. So if I put a mic on you for a week, you're like, man, you're really stalking today. If I put a mic on you for a week and I recorded your prayers and we played them back, Would they mainly be prayers of, God, give me this. God, I need this. God, help me here. Not that those are bad at all. Would there be prayers of gratitude? God, thanks for what you've done for me. Go back to Psalm 92, verse 4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. Okay, so we know God in part by what he's done. Okay, but here's what we have to remember. That that God's goodness and God's worthiness 
to be thanked isn't summed up in the span of our lifetime. Okay, it's not summed up in the idea of what God's done for me, makes God worthy to be thanked. Okay, God's so much bigger than us. Okay, he's been on the scene way longer than us. So if we define God's worthiness to be thanked based on how our life has gone, we're missing it. God's bigger than that. God's defined by his nature and his character as depicted in scripture that's been true for all time. And this is why the psalmist says, you've made me glad by your work. But here's the amazing thing. It includes us. Like God's work happened apart from us, but in God's grace, he said, I want to intervene my plan with you and me. And so the psalmist says, your work has made me glad. So there's a me-centeredness to this. Your work has made me glad. The, the psalmist in Psalm 139, verse 14 says, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. And that was, I just remember, just that was my confession when my kids were born. Remember when Michaela was born, my first kid, like just that experience, like my soul knows it well of God's goodness. Psalm 107 verse 9, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. He satisfies them. He brings contentment. I love this quote by Paul Tripp. It says, contentment celebrates grace. The contented heart is satisfied with the giver and is therefore freed from craving the next gift. Here's a question. How much do you complain? How much do you complain? I wish I had this. This isn't good enough. Da, da, da. Why isn't this like this? I want this. How much do you complain? It's a sign of your trust in the Lord. It's a sign of your tr- dissatisfaction in the gifts and therefore dissatisfaction ultimately in the giver. Because here's what complaining is. Complaining is a sign of, of entitlement. Okay, like you're driving home from work and you get stuck in traffic. Like, oh, I hate traffic. I'm in a hurry. I have to be somewhere. I know no one else is in a hurry and no one else has to be somewhere. So I should be able to not have to sit in this. Like, that's entitlement, isn't it? You know, I deserve this. You know, mine is like, I want a house. I don't want to be in an 800 square foot basement forever. I want a backyard, you know, so I can put the kids out there with a trampoline, a swing set, and maybe lock the door and not have to worry about them like running into the woods. (laughs) Am I entitled to that? Like when I stop and think about it, I think about like how many people like don't have that. How many people actually don't have a roof over their head? They don't have heat. There's a lot of people that don't. And yet I feel like I'm entitled to it. (laughs) 
Are we entitled to that phone not ringing? I mean, do you you follow that? Like, we have this sense of entitlement about how we live. I deserve this. When we stop and think about it, fairness. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Like, that's what's fair. We want to talk fair. Like, what do we deserve? What am I entitled to? Grace, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like, this is what Paul Tripp meant when he said contentment celebrates grace. Why am I content? Because I don't deserve anything. So the little that I have, what it may be, even though it's not what he has or she has or they say I should have, the little that I do have, I celebrate and I'm content in because he's enough and he's given me enough. He's given me himself. This is the phrase that my daughter's memorizing every night when she goes to bed. I say, Mikhail, God has not given you, she says, a spirit of fear. And I say, why? And she says, because he's given me himself. Like, that's enough. Like, why can we not fear? Why can we be content in this life no matter how it plays out? Because God's like, I'm giving you myself. I love the confession of the Apostle Philip in John 14, verse 8. He says this, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. It's enough. Even though just after that, he's rebuked because Jesus is like, I'm the essence of the Father. But his heart was like, give me the Father, and that is enough for me. This contented gratitude in the Lord is a sign of the maturity of our faith. I was blown away this week by this quote by Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor and author. He says, contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord at his disposal. At his disposal. Not how I set out, not what I define to be content, not not what I define to be where my joy is, but, but I have no higher ambition than God, I'm yours And you have whatever right you want to do whatever you want with me. And I'm okay with that. Because you are a good and loving God. And you're eternal. And I'm not. That's what Paul says in Philippians 4. Not that I'm speaking from being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's amazing to read that verse in its context. When's the last time you read Philippians 4.13? In the context of the reality of contentment in Jesus. Like, I can be content with what I want, but yet God says, not now. Like, I can be content. Why? Because he's given me himself. God, give us the Father, and that is enough for us. God, I'm at your disposal. Abundance, loss, 
It's like Moses saying, God, if you don't go with us, then don't take us up from here. Like what if where you're at right now in your life, whatever you're hoping for, God says, you can have that. Like I'll give you that thing you want, but I'm not going with you. Like it scares me to think that I would consider that. Like, like wouldn't, wouldn't we, if we're honest? Let's weigh the odds. Like, 1,400 square feet, seven, 800 square feet. Like, my fear is that I would do that. But if he's not with us, can you find true contentment? I don't believe so. I believe it's going to be short and not what, not what he intended. So this is my confession. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. For you've made me glad by your work. Like why, why do I have reason to be glad? The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Like is that, is that enough? Like until we're faced with this pressing reality of that being all we have, until God begins to strip away the things that we find our contentment in, unfortunately, that won't be enough. Unfortunately, it will take God stripping away the things that we long for in order to show us that's not it. That's not going to cut it. What's your confession? Is it good enough? Let's pray. God, this is hard. And we need your help. <laughs> God, our confession this morning is that it's good to give thanks to you. God, we don't always do that. We don't always do that with the right heart. Oftentimes we want to cover our tracks. We want to give thanks to the point where it's pointing back at us and it's reminding us of, of our agenda, our plan. God, would we be okay with belonging to you at, at your disposal? God, whatever you want to do. God, that we would trust you enough to say, God, if you, if, if you say no, as long as I get you, as long as I see you, as long as I get to walk with you, as long as you're going to be present, then okay. God, get us there. God, I'm not there. God, help us get there. And we confess it is good to give thanks for you have made us glad by your work. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.